Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am Anthony Livingston Hall. I am an avowed anti-monarchist. Interestingly enough, every one of my many British friends is one too. Even so, I had nothing but unbridled affection for Queen Elizabeth II. But I am acutely aware that for many people there is no reconciling this apparent inconsistency. This is why I have given those who support the British monarchy ten days of unfettered time to grieve before chiming in. Of course I am also aware that this might strike some as a backhanded tribute, but I hope you will find that mine is not only fair but necessary to help reflect more accurately the public emotions the Queen's death evoked. My antipathy for the monarchy the Queen embodied dates back to my childhood. That's when I developed an innate sense of resentment at seeing my compatriots take greater pride in the Queen's honours, like knighthoods and OBEs, than in our national independence. But it speaks volumes that at the time of her death, Queen Elizabeth was head of state of only 14 of the 56 countries that compose the British Commonwealth, and two of those 14, namely Australia and Jamaica, were already on record making clear their intent to remove her as their head of state. Not to mention that she witnessed Scotland's ongoing efforts to become independent, which would break up the United Kingdom itself. The point is that the sun had pretty much set on the British Empire before the Queen died, and it does not bode well for what little sunshine remains that the Bahamas and Antigua greeted the accession of Charles to the throne by immediately announcing that, like Australia and Jamaica, they intend to become republics too. No doubt the domino effect will be that it's only a matter of time before the British Empire will be composed of England entire of itself. Apropos of which, some of us are all too mindful that Imperial England established the British Commonwealth in 1931, primarily to retain dominion over its colonies, because England could see they were all determined to become independent. So the aim was clearly to codify its continuing influence through the soft power 
vested in the crown. Indeed, but for the admiration and affection so many had for the queen, the sun would have already set long ago, not just on the British Empire, but on the Commonwealth, too. Former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull explained the relatable and irrepressible dynamic afoot. He famously said that all Australians are Elizabethans, but not all Australians are monarchists. They just think their head of state should be Australian. Period. Uh, frankly, the Queen embodied a legacy of empire and colonialism, which Britons should not only regret, but for which they owe a great debt. This is why so many Commonwealth countries are marking her death, with calls for reparations as much as offers of sympathy. It is also why, if King Charles were to visit any country, where the British enslaved or brutally colonized blacks, he would be well advised to do so, not as His Majesty, but as a majestic guest. I cannot overstate that monarchy is anathema to the universal principle that all people are created equal. So any democracy that institutionalizes monarchy in the 21st century is almost as cancerous and oxymoronic as any that institutionalized slavery in the 19th. Nor can I resist repeating that Prince Charles once famously decreed that modern architecture is an eyesore on the skyline of London which needs to be demolished. But I submit that monarchy is an eyesore on the landscape of democracy, which needs to be abolished. Meanwhile, everyone is praising the Queen's lifelong sacrifices for duty and her devotion to public service that was unsurpassed and unwavering, except that this overlooks a glaring irony. After all, Queen Elizabeth faced the most damning criticism of her seventy-year reign when she appeared to resent having to serve as the nation's comforter-in-chief in the wake of Princess Diana's death. Recall that she only did so after Prime Minister Tony Blair warned that if she did not come down from her Balmoral Castle to lead the nation in mourning, the rest of her reign would be haunted by the memory of Diana as the people's princess. But this is why the Windsors must be so heartened by the outpouring of grief for the Queen and love for Charles and Camilla not least because it seems bound to surpass the truly shocking outpouring of grief for Diana and love for her boys, William and Harry, back then. 
petty, I know. But when you describe your family as the firm, PR matters far more than others might think. Indeed, the sudden adoration of Charles is such that he could be forgiven for thinking he's living in a dreamscape. But to understand why his reign is doomed, the title to my most recent blog post on the British royals says it all. London Times confirms my take. Prince Charles is a royal grifter. On June 28, 2022. Of course, nothing will be a greater portent of this doom than comparing the hundreds of world leaders and A-list celebrities attending the Queen's funeral with the spattering of them who will be attending Charles's coronation, <laughs> begrudgingly. Not to mention that Charles has provided enough reasons for us to match our affection for the Queen with disaffection for him. But I need only cite the way he responded during his and Lady Diana's first engagement interview when the reporter asked them this simple question, Are you in love? She blurted out effusively and endearingly, Yes, of course. But he snarked damningly and forebodingly, Whatever in love means. <laughs> and so it's hardly surprising that Charles did not endear himself this week when he was caught on camera giving his manservant a teeth-gnashing death stare because he failed to clear penholders off a signing table and then throwing a temper tantrum because, in a clear attempt to impress him, the Irish government provided a vintage fountain pen for him to sign its guest book that promptly leaked all over his royal fingers, triggering exasperated Charlie to fume. Oh, God, I hate this. I can't bear the bloody thing. They do it every stinking time. <laughs> this is why it rang so hollow to so many when this spoiled brat of a man-child resolved over and over again, to follow his mother's example of selfless duty faithfully. Indeed, some would say she did not have a single blot on her seventy-year reign, but he already had two in just seven days. More to the point, though, Commitment to public service alone hardly justifies maintaining the monarchy, as its supporters would have us believe. For example, I get queuing even for days to pay their respects. But instead of repeating pedestrian questions about what the Queen meant to them, I wish reporters would ask what public service the Queen actually performed meant the most to them, and why. 
because, I assure you, most would stare as if they had been asked to explain Schrodinger's equation. And that's because her role was as effectively ceremonial as it was systematically anachronistic. So yes, monarchists can impress you until kingdom come with citations from calendars of royal engagements. But most of those engagements amount to little more than pomp and circumstance, masquerading as public service. In fact, with all due respect to its hallowed tradition, the British monarchy today serves primarily as a driver of the UK economy, the way Disney World does of Florida's and the Queen personified the brand Britain marketing campaign that attracts millions of tourists to that sceptered isle, more than any other British royal did or ever could. Still, truth be told, I couldn't care less that the British people want King Charles and other British royals to continue performing like Mickey Mouse and other Disney characters to generate tourism revenues. But with all this talk of duty and public service, let's not pretend that the Queen ever did anything essential or that Charles ever will by performing such onerous duties as wearing a crown while reading a speech prepared by the Prime Minister for the opening of Parliament each year, holding receptions for new ambassadors to the UK, delivering an annual Christmas message to the British people, or indeed pinning medals on others. Wait for it for public services they actually rendered. Alas, thanks to the rise of celebrity and the advent of social media, royalty is just not what it used to be. After all, Queen Bey is more royal than King Charles, and Kylie commands more loyalty than Kate. Apropos of which, I assure you, from the Carnegie Foundation in the early 20th century to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation today, many American families have not just served as patrons, but donated so many billions to charities they make hailing the British royal family as patrons of charities seem like a Monty Python joke. As it happens, no less a news authority than the London Times explained why, just months ago. That's when it reported that Charles himself collected millions from the family of Osama bin Laden for his charities, and as if that were not damning enough, that he collected it over the years in cash, stuffed in Fortnum and Mason's shopping bags. 
Ultimately, though, the reason monarchy is so fatally flawed is that while anyone can grow up to be like Bay and Jay, or better still, like Barack and Michelle, one has to be born royal to be like Charles and Camilla. Indeed, don't get me started on the matter-of-fact way Charles passed on huge swathes of London, along with his princely titles to William, during his first speech as king. I mean, the nepotism was odious enough. But this royal family gets to transfer billions in generational wealth without having to pay a penny in the inheritance tax everyone else has to pay. This clearly reinforces my assertion that royalty makes a mockery of the universal principle that all people are created equal. That's it. Subscribe for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for thought-provoking commentaries, often laced with humor, I invite you to visit my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.